0: In, in the words of the, of the great Rick Clark, giddy up, let's go. Good evening, everyone. My name is Mitchell Hora. Uh, I'm your uh, host here for tonight. Um, Rick and his, his wife are out in Europe enjoying themselves. Um, so honored to be able to step in here tonight and uh, host the Farm Grain podcast. Um, been on before, but uh, for those that don't know me, um, Mitchell Hora. I am a 7th generation farmer from Southeast Iowa. I've got a couple different podcasts I do myself. The Top Soul Podcast and the Fieldwork Podcast. Um, but my main thing is I've got Continuum Agra, soil health software company. And my guest tonight um, is my dad, Brian Hora. <laughs> uh, just wanted to be able to take the time. I, I think a lot of you know dad. He Obviously he's a key part of a lot of uh, the, you know, he's the guy that's getting her done on our farm, making things go, taking the crazy ideas from uh, the folks we hang out with, like Rick and Lauren and the rest, and trying to figure out, you know, can we take some of those concepts and implement them on our farm? And most importantly, can we make it pay? <laughs> so that's key. But anyway, Dad, maybe uh, two, two things up um, for the rest of the people. Kind of uh, explain a little bit more just to set the stage about our farm. And uh, maybe what you're seeing here this year on the farm.
1: Okay. Um,
0: So yeah, I'm Brian and uh, we farm in Washington
1: County, which is Southeast Iowa, um, South of Iowa City. So um, half hour South of Iowa City. So give you a little context where we're at. Um, Corn, soybeans, and rye on the the farm operation. Um, We have about 700 acres of our own. And then I do some custom work for another buddy as well. Um, We're doing the corn, soybeans for him. So we've been on this... um, cover crop journey for 10 years now. Um, no tilled a lot before that, but in the last 10 years, we've been getting into the cover crops. And um, this year, well, actually over the last five years, we've been dealing with a lot of weather stresses, particularly you know lack of water. Um, this year is no different. Um, but what we're noticing is a very good uh, transition in this process with the cover crops, that the stresses that we're dealing with don't seem to be as impactful as they used to be. Um, I drove across southern Iowa, uh, most of the way across southern Iowa, uh, back and forth today. And um, you don't have to go very far west and things start, start to look pretty rough, uh, drying up, burning up, um, triple digits over there in south central Iowa though today. Um, but although all those areas had a lot of rain early, a lot of water early, but we were really short. And they're now paying the price for it because I don't think their crop's rooted down real well. Um, here, we, were, we, were...
0: we Nothing early on. You can share some of that. But, yeah, especially between where we are, southeast Iowa and Des Moines, really burned up. If I Yesterday and the day before, I went I-80 clear out to western Iowa and then just north there a little bit, um, highway 44 on the way back, and out there it looks beautiful. But, yeah, east of Des Moines, between Des Moines and southeast Iowa here, yeah, really just it's just spotty like you just see the spots where it didn't root down and yeah it's yeah. Just
1: yeah a couple of months ago driving through there um south of Des Moines it, it just looked terrific everything was green and growing and now everything's burning up and it's really stressed today um but you know that's that's what happens you you don't have a, a crop that's rooted down and I think that's one thing that maybe we could hit on today is that the resilience of, a, of the crop and um the getting a lot more uniformity just because we've been pushing this cover crop and I think our crops have rooted down, the soil has changed. And as we have heard all about this regenerative system and the resilience of a cover crop system, um, we're really seeing it this year and things actually do look really good. So Mitchell, you mentioned about what we've seen this year. Um, we had um, decent conditions at planting. It was on the cool side like everybody, but um, we went dry in early May um it's been an odd year we have a farm that's about 30 miles from home and it actually is probably above average rainfall for the year um pushing since since uh, planting time at the end of april i would say it's probably pushing 17 inches of rain um where here at home um we had a couple inches uh, uh well a little over three inches about two weeks ago um so things look pretty good. We've actually, the yard is actually green back up. It's not doing, not really growing here today, but um, we actually green back up. But throughout May and um, all of June, we were extremely dry. Went about seven weeks really with no measurable rain to speak of. And then the end of June, first part of July, we had two, two and a half inches. Went dry again until there about, that, about the fifth or so of August, fifth to the 10th, where we had another three plus inches. Um, so really made a huge difference on our soybean crop and definitely helping the corn crop to fill out and things look you know, things look really good today and under the, the amount of heat that we've got. It looks terrific out there.
0: Yeah, it's going to end up being okay. And I think, you know, so, uh, for people coming in, um, once again, we're kind of going to talk a lot about our, our farm today. It's down in Southeast Iowa around Washington, Uh, A lot of material out there about Washington County. We're in a spot where there's a lot of no-till. We've been, you know, our family's been dabbling in it since the late 70s. There's a lot of cover crop. We've been doing that for the last 10 years. Um, A lot of other farms around here have as well. But especially in a year like this where, yeah, very, very little rain, especially uh, May and June. Um, Now even through the summer, it's just been really spotty. I don't know what we've only had the biggest rain that we've had all year is in one day is an inch and a half
1: yeah and that was um you know it depends on the farm again um the farm that's 30 miles away to have a two and a half inch rain right at the beginning of june um and it had constant rain ever since but here at home yeah we've had one rain about an inch and a half um two other rains that were in excess of an inch uh but overall we're just about nine inches i think for the, yeah. since, since end of April, since planting time, um, April, month of April, we were dry in April too. We only had about two inches in April. Um, so we're running about half of where we should be for the growing season. And, yeah. um, there's a lot of, lot of drainage tile around here. Our drainage tile quit running in May. They ran from early March through May. Um, and that's all they've run. They haven't run any water since.
0: We, uh, for some context, Southeast Iowa, where we are, is typically a 35 inches of precip um, for the year. And uh, now that includes snow and stuff as well. We probably get 25% of that precip of snow, I would assume. But yeah, uh, we we have a lot of data that we track on our farm. Very, very data oriented. And watching these rainfall events, like Dad was just talking, we're about half of our normal rainfall uh, for this year. Luckily, getting some shots here and we're going to end up being okay. Um, And, uh, but luckily the crop was able to rip down early on. And the key thing for us has been when we get the rainfall event, we actually get that water in the ground on our farm. We have a water infiltration rate of four inches of rainfall infiltration in less than five minutes. So now (laughs) it's not really, paying off that much for us this year because our biggest rain of the entire year is an inch and a half and we can infiltrate an inch of rain in six seconds so we can definitely take all that in but uh the key thing here is you know when we have drought conditions like this we've got that resilience built in after the use of these regenerative practices that now in a year like really paying off now, early on, part of the year, though, that it, I mean, it looked like crap early part of the year. We planted all, pretty much all of our beans got planted the week of April 10th, right after um, Easter. We had an awesome week, like 90%, 95% of our beans got planted that week. And then the mass majority of the corn got planted. I think it was the first or the last week of of April, first part of May, uh, like all the corn got planted. And uh, I don't know, probably should have planted. If we had two tractors, we probably should have planted everything that first week of April, would have been, or that second week of April would have been interesting. But um, with our size of operation, our, our our context, our constraints, that's the way that things worked out. But it looked rough early part of the year because keep in mind, we're planting everything green. So those beans got planted the week of April 10th, and we didn't terminate a cover crop on the bean ground until May 20th.
1: Yeah, so I we, think the yeah, about the 17th, 18th. 17th to 18th this year. Yeah. Close to that. So
0: half of our rye, we took all the way in relay. crop. Lauren Steinlagi was on before Lauren's been on, uh, the pot, on the show multiple times. We've been doing a lot of this relay crop. And this year was our fifth year doing the relay crop where instead of using herbicides, we get rid of the herbicides from the program until after we harvest the rye, uh, we planted the soybeans in April. We let the beans and the cereal rye grow together. And then in July, we come out and harvest the rye over the top of the soybeans. Um, so we've got the rye that we then keep or sell as cover crop seed. And now we've got the soybeans that we'll be able to take a crop off of those two. We're Southeast Iowa, about an hour in from Missouri. So double cropping in our area is tough, really tough. Well, um, at least to be able to really maximize the potential there, but relay cropping, we've been able to have phenomenal success with that, but dad, maybe want to, dig into what you saw here this year on the relay
1: yeah so why don't i lay out this what our intentions were because typically around here what our intentions are and what we actually do uh, vary quite a bit Um, so a year ago um, as we were sitting there thinking about cover crop um, it's like you know what we've been doing oh 10 20 maybe 30 acres a year and it's been working really well we've been seeing really good yields and Great weed control, um, minimal amounts of uh, herbicide applications, um, You know, good yields, both in corn and, or, the, or the rye and the soybeans. So it's like, you know what, we might as well up the game. If we're going to keep doing this, we might as well make it work. So the intention was to do about 100 acres of relay crop rye. Um, and when we do that, we like to plant a really full season bean um, in those areas. So we've gone in our area. Typically, you're in a group three range, um, maybe some late twos. Um, Some will plant, you know, three sixes, three sevens, but you don't see a lot beyond that. Well, we've jumped to a a group four in our relay beans, um, trying to maximize the use of the sun's energy, essentially. Capture as much as we can for as long a season as we can. And then also take advantage of these late rains, because that has been our pattern to be really dry during the month of July, early August, and then get rains late. So that was the intention. Well, um, as we were setting up a turbo till, uh, that old Great Plains turbo till with a Montag unit on it to seed the cover crop. And we use Elbon rye as our cover crop um, in our relay. um, That process that was some equipment issues and such, we got a late start on it. So I actually had some rye that was drilled in mid-October. And then we planted the rest of it in November. Um, as dry as it was in the fall, we had a pretty slow start on the rye. Come spring, um, the rye was really small. We, and as Mitchell mentioned, we planted, started planting uh, 10th or 11th of April. And that rye was, a lot of that rye that was planted with the, um, the air system. Um, a lot of it was only about four inches tall. So it was pretty small. Um, went ahead and did it. And what I'd learned was planting into rye that was that small in the dry conditions, I think I tore a lot of rye out of the ground with planting with a drill. We, and we no-till with a, a drill on seven, seven and a half inch spacings. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I tore a lot of that rye out, did some damage to it, which thinned my stand even further. Um, as we got close to termination uh, time and, and all the beans were planted then, group, the group fours, and then I had some that we all went all the way to a, uh, a two, like there are a two nine maturity. Um, not in an area that I intended to keep as a relay. But as the, the ride developed this spring, um, I saw where the really, really good stands were at. And instead of keeping 100 acres, I kept 140 of it. Um, so we expanded our acres quite a bit. And instead of having this nice, easy block in one field of this, I had it in four different fields. And some of it's rougher ground. And, but the rye was so good, I'm like, I'm just going to let it go. So yeah, it, the plan didn't come together as we thought, but it still saved the best rye.
0: But it's been awesome to see this relay thing really take off on our farm, too. That it, it's in the fall, we're planting cereal rye ahead of soybeans anyway. In the relay, we usually go 60 pounds of rye instead of 45. Now, keep in mind on like Rick's context, where he's trying to roll a crimp, where he's in organic, he goes a lot heavier rate. We're not in an organic system. We're in a conventional system. And uh, for where we're trying to relay or where we're doing our regular cover crop, we don't go crazy high rates of rye. 45 to 60 pounds of rye, no big deal. Like Dad was talking, a lot of it got planted really late. Now, this year we'll be up on it and be able to plant significantly earlier, get that fall growth, be able to get get things better established. But the cool thing is we plant all these beans in the spring, just like we normally would, plant them green, and then we just wait and spray off whatever we want to go ahead and kill uh, that doesn't look that great or that's going to be a pain in the butt to go and try to harvest it and keep the good stuff that we want to keep. And it is, it was really hodgepodge. Like how we, how you terminated stuff around like the end rows and that, like, cause a lot of times it was keeping the end rows, you know, don't try the borders of the field, keep the borders there. And because um, the rye was looking amazing and it was holding the weeds down on its own, came in and harvest the rye. What um, yields weren't amazing here though, this year. No, the, they were, it was kind of all over the place, and a lot of that, as I mentioned
1: earlier, we were dry. Um, I did have one farm where we had the rye that's a little bit further away, and every time it seemed like we got a tenth or two at home, that farm would get a half inch, um, it's just a few miles away, but the beans there and that rye really grew a lot better. It had a really good stand over there, and so we let them go, and um, I thought the beans in that, and it's a variety that maybe... the. The emergence of that variety they just look terrific um so we ended up probably ranging from about 18 to 22 23 bushels of the acre on the rye but um with that late planting the stresses of hitting that rye early and then lack of water um the, the rye didn't tiller her very much so and this Elbon rye is pretty thin anyhow so i was getting a lot more sun to the ground than i typically would like to see getting down through that canopy um so things were drying out quite a bit on us um but so combination of things be again being short of water if i were to have it to do it again i would probably put some nitrogen on that rye in the early in the year yeah to get it go little, get, little get bit it going bit because you know we had rye once we finally started getting rain um caught a few rains you know during june or in july all of a sudden things started to green back up which made it yeah. a challenge to harvest because I had green rye trying to come into the rest of this stuff, um, these plants that were stressed, all of a sudden they start some new growth again, and then you got these little seed heads coming. So, with that, we're going to have a lot of uh, volunteer rye on those acres for next year to deal with. But um, as we said, the, where the the cover or the relay crop was at, um, it was kind of all over the place yield wise. Um, the beans, the ones that I planted the earliest, the group fours, they looked god awful for the longest time they just were not growing and now as far as the relay beans go they're the best looking ones we've got they caught an inch of rain uh the day after i finished harvesting my rye i had an inch of rain that next morning which was absolutely perfect um couldn't have ordered a better rain um it got all the weeds that i cut off um got them to grow a little bit so about three days later i was able and, and all the straw went to the ground so about three days later, I was able to spray and um, clean everything up really, really well.
0: Yeah, because keep in mind here, everyone, that it's, this is solid-seeded rye in the fall, like our cover crop, then drilled soybeans in the spring. They're solid-seeded. So we go out there and we run over some of the soybeans. They're not in rows, stuff like Lauren and other guys do. We've solid, it's solid-seeded. We cut it over the top, spit some of the, uh, the straw at the backs so of that rain, just knock that straw down in, Those beans are able to take off and go. They got full sunlight, rain, and then uh, we do come through and and hit it with a shot of of herbicide. No residuals or nothing like that, just a contact killer to uh, just clean things up. Dad loves super clean fields. And, uh, but the key with that has been, you know, we're in a conventional system and the more we can keep ahead of the weeds now, the more and more we're able to continue to cut back. Um, Also here, everyone, please put, your uh, questions in the chat or raise your hand and Rachel will, will bring you in, um, ask your questions here live to us here as well. You know, we want to talk about what you talk about, get your questions answered. Um, there's a, a nice crowd in here. So I appreciate you uh, spending your evening with us here. Um, so it was just talking there Dad, about, you know, cutting back on some of our, our inputs, maybe tell the story on uh, some of your experiments on herbicides here first, then we're going to get into some of the other, stuff that you're cutting back. Again, we're not in a organic system like Rick. Rick has gotten to that full extent. We, in our system, we're in a conventional system. We're just looking at, can we reduce our cost of production? We're only on 700 acres. We got to make every acre really pay. And that's where the relay cropping helps because we got two crops that we're going to harvest. Usually we're looking for 30 bushel ride. This is about 20 bushel on average because of the the drought in the late planting beans, hopefully they'll still make 65, 70 bushel beans. Usually we're going for 70, 75, 80 bushel beans um, and being able to do it in a relay, like it's still super profitable. But but yeah, tell the story on uh, some of your herbicide experiments here for this year and come back on herbicides.
1: So we all hear everybody talk about using uh, cover crops to uh, for weed control. And a couple of weeks ago, I calculated our costs per acre for corn and soybean herbicides. And this is total cost on all acres of soybeans. Um, I'm below $19 an acre. Um, That includes my relay. That includes everything that was, um, with the the rye that was terminated early. And um, on corn, I was at about, uh, just a little under $18 an acre. So we are definitely using the rye to help us. Um, Corn and beans, First pass, if I'm spraying my burn down, I'm strictly spraying Roundup, Um, glyphosate, generic, you know, a generic Roundup. Um, I don't use any residuals first pass because I'm spraying on cover crop that's actively growing. Um, Typically in the corn, it's at least a foot tall, if not more. And the soybeans, um, that first burn down pass, third week of May, you know, I've got seed heads on the rye already. So, Soil applied herbicide does not work if it does not get to the soil, is my thought process on it. So, why, why put it out there? Um, and this year, with the dry conditions, especially early, it would not have done any good to put it out there. So, um, then it comes to rates. Um, so, with that, um, and I have, I've had people ask me, you know, you're spraying four foot tall rye. What are you using 40 ounces? I'm like, no. Um, I'm spraying on it today. You know, it's been 80, 85 degrees. This rye is growing fast, it's got water. Um, a pint, maybe even down to 12 ounces is plenty. It'll kill it. Uh, it doesn't not, does not take very much when it's growing as fast as it's growing. Um, it's had great growing conditions. I'm not dealing with this high, this fluctuating temperatures. Um, it's warm, so the grass is growing fast. So it doesn't take very much to kill it. So m- most of the bean acres had a, a pint. Um, I, I use that really light rate on, on a lot of the corn acres, but uh a pint of Roundup on uh soybeans first pass. And then um I came back so terminated that rye and other than the relay crop and simply where I've got relay crop, I just you know I've got auto steer on the sprayer. So I just skip a bunch of swaths typically and just jump over to wherever the next one needs to start. Um just saves me a lot of hassle. Um but then second pass coming through oh probably i want to say around the middle of may or june i'm sorry 15th to 20th of june second pass and i've got enlist beans planted so i'm spraying um enlist and at that time i was also putting on um, some biologicals so um some growth promotants maybe some micronutrients and some, some things like that um the nice thing about doing that with straight enlist is I don't have to slow down and stop for a waterway. I can just spray right through everything, clean the, the uh, broad leaves out of the waterways and off the edges, and um, spray everything really, really quick. Um, so I sprayed all the, everything that had been uh, previously terminated all got a passive enlist then. And then um, some of it, I had some breaks in well, one field, I guess I had some grass coming along some edges. So I did go ahead and use Liberty on them, um, a pint of Liberty. tends to work, a pint of Liberty, pint of Enlist, and all of the relay cropping, I came back in and hit with a, after harvest, um, sprayed a pint of Liberty and a pint of Enlist on all of that as well. Um, Some of the acres then, where I did have some breaks along the edges of the field, the field borders, the waterways, um, I outlined a lot of that again. But about a third of our acres has a pint of liberty and a pint of or, or excuse me, pint of Roundup and a pint of enlist on it. And that's the program
0: for the year. Yeah. So $18 program on it. No residuals, no none of these uh like uh, additional fancy stuff. It's all just generics where what a typical herbicide program, especially with the uh, prices of stuff today, plenty of people spending $50, $60 plus, we're spending at 18 yeah. Like just letting the ride out. well again, we're not all the way, you know, we're in a conventional system, but it's just cutting back to being the bare minimum. We don't need to spend any more money than what we need to. We don't want to spend, we don't want to spend any putting more pesticides out there than we need to. Because obviously, from a soil health perspective, anytime we're spending those pesticides, we're killing good guys here, too. So, by reducing those rates, cutting back, doing only what we need. We're, you know, working that principle of minimizing disturbance and minimizing chemical disturbance. Since uh, we're all, you know, no-till and minimizing the physical disturbance as well. But you're you're taking this even further here too on the insecticides and stuff as well. Maybe talk a little bit about the insecticides and the sugars and stuff like that that we're that you're playing with.
1: Yeah, we've tried some, um, especially in corn, um, applying sugar. Um, I actually did it in some soybeans this year as well. had a product that was a growth promotant that's um, supposed to help the plants to put more lateral branches on, um, and so I was putting that on, and it needed a uh, a little energy supply with it, so just use some plain sugar. Go to Walmart, and buy sugar. But um, I I did that on corn as well, trying to use the, the sugar to bring raise the bricks content of the plants. Um, most of these insects can't digest it, um, so they'll quit eating those plants for a, a time frame. Um, We haven't had a tremendous amount of insect pressure this year compared to past. Our biggest problem has been uh, either rootworm beetles or Japanese beetles. Um, Japanese beetles have been kind of rough in the last several years. And once you get them, it's hard to get rid of the darn things. But um, I've used a little bit of insecticide in places to kind of clean some things up. If if i got too much pressure, but I don't like to use them, if I don't have to. Um, And then um, I'll go a little further on the growth promotes and such as well one of the downsides of having this relay crop is trying to get some of those products on because I'm just not feeling like I don't want to run over the rye first of all. But secondly, um, getting that, those products down onto the soybean leaves is pretty tough to do when you're spraying over the top of rye. So it makes, um, for some of our trials to be a little more, um, skewed because the beans next to the relay probably have a growth promotant on them or a micronutrient applied early, um, to help mitigate some stress issues. Um, so that's going to give them a little bit of an advantage this year. It yeah. uh, didn't really hit on the corn program at all, but corn, um, uh, again, as I mentioned, the herbicides burn down is just straight Roundup. Second path, then I'll come in with the, uh, a, I a, use a generic harness extra type pro, uh, product. It's got some atrazine, the harness in it, and uh, Roundup and uh, Callisto. Um, using about a uh, full rate of Callisto, but about a little over half rate of the harness product. So, I can do that pretty economically. Um, if I do ha- see some escape um, water hemp, which I really haven't had any problems with it, um, I could come back with another shot of Callisto if I had to. And, you know, it's only about three bucks an acre to do that. So, it's pretty cheap for really good weed control. But again, the cover crop can really do a lot to keep that weed pressure down.
0: Yeah. And, um, but it's taken multiple years, though, to get to that point here, though, too. I think that's a real thing that we've been able to figure out on our farm is we've got to be patient here. And when we have weeds, we get, we get them taken care of, get them killed. Because if they go to seed, it's just going to continue to exacerbate the problem for years to come. And uh, we're not gonna be able to continue to reduce the way that that we've been able to reduce. So it's been be very patient, utilize the cover crop as much as we can let it get as big as we can and suppress the weeds as much as we can and uh like later on in the spring when things are warmer and more consistent it's easier to kill it as well so we don't need as much but i'm just letting that biology do its own thing
1: so another we, one that our has. our primary weed pressure Mitchell, i probably ought to mention is you know we deal with water hemp. um you know there's a lot of grass around this year it seems to be a lot of woolly cup grass coming with the dry conditions maybe it'll germinate late but um, water hemp is the is the real problem weed that everybody has. We're in an area where there's a lot of livestock, a lot of hogs, so there's a lot of water hemp around here. Um, and that seems to be the one that's the toughest to get. Um, but I, I think what we've kind of realized is this cover crop is keeping the ground covered and keeping it cool, and therefore the water hemp doesn't germinate. It um, wasn't this year, but a year ago, we actually had some, uh, cornfield that I outlined waterways early. Had, we had Elbon rye planted. And it was thick. It was growing fast ahead of the corn. Um, I sprayed end of April, um, to, to kill this cover crop rye and had a little extra that went into an scenario where the rye, the rye wasn't as big. So I went ahead and finished spraying it off, outlined the field. Um, within an hour it was raining and I like, Oh, well, that was a waste of time, putting all that roundup out there and everything. But, um, it killed it. Um, but what I noticed is a year ago, if you remember back, when, in mid-May, we had a real warm spell about the second week of May. And the area there, that I had the thinner cover crop in, it wasn't as big, wasn't planted. We let that go. There wasn't anything coming for weeds in that, but the area that I had terminated that cover crop early, it was loaded with weeds. The, the water hemp was unbelievable how much pressure was coming when I took that cover crop out early. And that early that early heat got out there, and the weed pressure got ahead of the corn crop, and um, had to you know it wasn't hard to clean it up because it was already enough I could I could kill the stuff, but unreal how much extra water hemp came in those areas. Yeah, it's
0: just letting uh, a lot of it. Like we're seeing, there might be some of the aliopathic effect, you know, but it's also we're influencing carbon to nitrogen ratio, we're influencing soil temperature, we're influencing soil nitrate availability, keeping our nutrients in the organic form. It's all those things that are helping us to decrease those pest issues. Um, so another one that have been playing with this year is, is cutting back on fungicides. use the more micronutrients, more, uh, uh, alternatives, uh, fungicide, of course they're broad spectrum. I mean, they are helping to get rid of diseases, but they're probably killing a lot of the good guys that are out there as well and been, been working on decreasing some of that. So <clears throat> maybe speak to uh, you know, what you've been working on here this year with cutting fungicides.
1: Okay, so we've got several things, and we actually did some a year ago. Uh, would have been my first real t- uh, effort on using micronutrients instead of a fungicide. Um, we had a plot that they really didn't want me to put fungicide on. Uh, we were using some biological products and such. So we went in there and treated with uh, copper, manganese, and zinc. Um, Did that on both corn and soybeans. Um, The corn was kind of uh, a a late stage rescue, really, because we had a bunch of tar spot. It was really pressuring this this, uh, particular hybrid really bad. Um, I think at that time, it really stopped the progression of the tar spot. But um, on another farm, then I had it on soybeans. I sprayed the same uh, copper, zinc, and manganese on soybeans. And... Next to it, I used a fungicide. Um, didn't think much about it until harvest time came along. And I knew kind of where the line was at. And I was harvesting all day long in these beans. And they were good beans. They were right at 70 bushels of the acre. Um, rolling through them great. And thought you know they were been doing better than everything else. Later in the, aft, later in the evening, all of a sudden, um, the bean yield dropped. And about six, maybe eight bushels of the acre, we dropped off. Um, and what I really noticed was what was going on with my grain loss monitor. All of a sudden I was carrying beans out again, which is what had been happening previous days in other, in other fields. I was getting all these really small beans with the dry weather and everything. We had a lot of small stuff in there. Well, that area that I'd sprayed with, that, with the micronutrients, I wasn't seeing any yield lost, anything coming out of the back of the combine. So I think it was all just seed size was making up that, that yield difference. So that's what we're kind of are working towards this year um, using the micronutrients to promote plant health, which also gives you know, keeps the plant and the leaves healthier, but um, I just get better soybean size. And that's kind of what our attempt is this year. Um I do have an, a couple other products that will probably um, get labeled for as a fungicide, but the, all they are is micronutrients. Um Trying to use those um, to control diseases both in corn and soybeans, and unfortunately this year, well, fortunately we don't have a a tar spot problem. Unfortunately, we can't really test to see if this stuff controls tar spot Um, (laughs) because we just we have not seen tar spot at all around this area this year. Previous two years it was it was really bad. Um, So and where I've got a micronutrient, several treatments here at home with some biologicals um, with a traditional Deltima fun, fungicide um, and then even strips with nothing. Um, I really can't tell much difference walking across the field here because the only disease we have is gray leaf spot and it's not very much because it's been so dry. The farm where we've been getting rain, there's a fair amount of gray leaf spot on it. Um, and I do have a really good biological treatment up there. It's got some micronutrients and some, um, some, mi- uh, some microbes, biological um, additives in it. And in the middle of a 90 acre chunk, I've got about uh, 15 acres treated with Veltima. And when I walk across it, I know where it's at, um, but I can't tell walking through, looking at the crop, that there's any difference in them. Um, Price-wise, I'm a little bit cheaper with the biological than I am with a Veltima, not a lot. Um, they're both pretty pricey, um, but it's gonna be interesting to see how they develop through the fall and keep those plants alive and keep them green longer. And Mitchell, I want to ask you about this, but sometime, maybe we'll have to figure this out. If I can keep those corn plants green for an extra three weeks, how much more carbon can I put in the soil?
0: I don't <laughs> um, You know, being able to continue to pump carbon down in the ground for longer, keep feeding our microbes, continue to make things function, uh, but also, I mean, from on the farm side, I think we're talking about standability, we're talking about maintaining that yield, we're talking about, you know, fending off uh, for poor weather conditions, the, you know, being more resilient, like what we're seeing really shine through here this year, really seeing that resiliency pay off. Um, Even when things early part of the year might not have looked amazing, now they're pulling through and uh, able to have that resilience that we're not seeing uh, with some of the... (laughs) not seeing everywhere as we're driving around and uh, seeing the rest of the countryside. But, but I was going to ask on the, the cost side of things, that's really what this boils down to is it's got to be profitable. Number one, we're we're running a business here. It's got to be profitable. It's only 700 acres. We've got to make them all work. And, uh, uh, but if we can do it in a manner that's better for our soil health, that uh, that helps out a lot, you know? So Looking for long haul. Um, Just had a question come in and yeah, folks, please definitely put your, put your, um, put your questions in the chat or raise your hand and Rachel will let you in. Um, Obviously dad and I are just talking on all kinds of different stuff here that we're going on, uh, on the farm and uh, got a couple other topics that we're going to hit on here as well. But, um, but uh, feel free, jump in anytime. Gibberellic acid. Uh, Brad, thanks for the question. Brad's using it on corn silage, keeping the leaves green. Um, Brad, might have to have you jump in and help and explain it. I don't know nothing about it, Dad. Do you know what? Uh, nope. What is?
1: Uh, no, that's what, out. That that's was,
0: out of my wheelhouse. That's out of our wheelhouse, there. So, Brad, maybe uh, uh, if you want to, you know, explain kind of seeing what you're seeing, um, come uh, come on in and we'll uh, we'll chat on it. We've been playing around more so with a lot of other humic acids and other products like that. We've got products on the humic acid side of things and other micronutrients and sugars. I'm assuming it's all the same type of concept. Those, um, a lot of those humic acids and stuff, they're just long chain carbons is what they are. So we're talking about short chain carbons like table sugar, you know, where we're talking about just simple, simple sugar compounds. The plant, of course, is looking at, sucrose and fructose and glucose and then you get longer chain carbons like um humic acid and fulvic acid and then going all the way to longer chain carbons like cellulose and lignin and humus more complex molecules but uh okay growth regulator brad sam growth regulator rise up smart grass fancy but uh so gibberellic, but on the corn side, so it's the same type of concept. I mean, of keeping things green, keeping things happy and healthy, but maybe being able to do it without fungicide. And what the issue is a lot of these fungicides, you know, just like what we're seeing in herbicides as well, that you utilize the same thing, same mode of action over and over and over, and you don't get the you don't get the coverage and you don't get the defense that you want to get. So instead, if you can make the plant healthier on its own and be more on the offensive side of things. You don't have to just play defense all the time. So, I don't know, I think seems like it's a good path to be on being able to let the plant do its own thing and I don't know. I mean, I suppose what we kind of get to the point eventually on the fungicide side of things just like we are with the insecticides, hey, we'll use it if we absolutely have to, but we're going to go to all the, go to all the other extents first to fend off the uh the issue and only use the pesticide if we absolutely have to at the end do you think that's where we end up getting to here uh, what percentage of the farm even had fungicide on it this year it wasn't a massive percentage
1: no uh probably less than half the corn um a, a traditional you know a, a a chemical fungicide that is um and then um i used up I had a jug of uh of uh dough mark leftover fun to for soybeans um it's been in the shed for two years I've, i decided to get rid of it um so I sprayed it um and i I put that on where i uh the uh the beans were we had the uh relay so just because it was they were looking like they're going to do something looking decent, and um I wanted to get rid of the product so I used it
0: up pushed along a little bit but obviously those relay beans too they've gone through plenty of stress. So they're, yep. you know, they could be acceptable there. That's where it's okay. Utilize the product, try to help them out with a little bit of that stress tolerance and, um, and go from there. But um, so maybe, you know, something- there's a
1: lot, there's just a lot of things going on. And I've a lot of these different products um, you can read all kinds of literature from everywhere, but there's a lot of stuff. Uh, a lot of people that are, uh, have this feeling that these fungicides that we use um, same chemistries that we use in a lot of, uh, um, human, um, human and animal vaccines and such. So, um, there's wor- there's some concerns about the, in, them becoming ineffective and causing other health issues as that as well. And, um, that if we lose them, um, cause these same families of products are used throughout all of the food system for all yeah. types of food products and there's some concerns about lose, losing the use of them um, so that we can save them for human health issues. Um, so if that's the case, we're gonna have to find some other answers. And, and then the, 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 the big part of that too is, um, as I'm being told, as, as we get told, you know, if we have tar spot really bad um, and your fungicide doesn't work, just spray it again. And, you know, and then, then that'll, that'll help. Well, that's really not a really good solution um, just to keep spraying over and over and over again because the first product wasn't working. Um, so let's maybe find some alternatives to it and let's keep things healthier so we don't have to keep doing that. And that's kind of something- what we're going by here now and, and realizing makes- that there's maybe there's bigger benefits to some of these other
0: products. It makes somebody a lot of money going with that route though. Just didn't work the first time, spray it again.
1: Just yeah, that's, that's for certain.
0: The first jab didn't work, jab again, jab again. That's different, that's yeah. different.
1: Yeah, well, it kind of goes that way with the fertilizer too. You know, if your your first application doesn't stay there because the weather or what have you, just put more on. And oh, no. um, it's right and here. I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with everybody's thought processes now uh, going into another year. You know, last year um, putting more fertilizer on was not a good option. Um, over the last twelve months, or the previous um, t- from twelve months ago for a nine month period there. Um, price of N, P, and K was so high, I was like, no, well, I'm not, not going to do that. But now after a couple of years, I'm not applying very much P and K. Um, I don't know what's going to happen with everybody's thoughts. Prices are down, but um, are you seeing a lot of deficiency deficiency symptoms showing up? Are you going to put more on or um, are you going to wait and see what happens, especially now with the price of the commodities dropping? So um, it'd be interesting to find to see what does happen with the
0: P and K applications. Well, that uh, to shift gears a little bit, you know, talk about on efficiencies overall. You know here we' this whole episode, we've been talking a lot about how we're cutting back on stuff and you know working things down that regenerative path. Um, you know, being patient with it, but moving it in that direction. This carbon intensity thing uh, is the new opportunity to be able to put a number on that. and being able to put a number on what is your actual carbon footprint per bushel. It's something that a Continuum Ag we've been really hot on. Carbon intensity is really important for biofuel uh, markets, especially, in um, markets that are in- affected by the new 45Z tax credit. Uh, not necessarily new, but um, new for uh, producers because of the Inflation Reduction Act and some of the amendments that it made where biofuel companies can earn tax credits, lowering the carbon intensity of their biofuel and they can include lowering the carbon intensity of the grain that goes into the biofuel to count towards their ability to earn these tax credits. So on our farm, we have some of our fields that have a carbon intensity score as low as negative 10.1, which is worth more than $2 a bushel in these tax credits. And this year we might not be quite 240 bushel corn. So we'll, we'll recalculate the scores at the end of the year when we know yield. But when we have 240 bushel um, averages 240 bush of corn with a CI score of negative 10.1 is worth over $530 per acre. Significant um, opportunity for biofuel companies and farmers to work together. But uh, interesting just to see, you know, that the um, this story coming together, you know, and this stuff, you know, the work that you've been after for 40 years working this direction and uh, especially the stuff we've been really hammering on the seven eight years um puts us in a really unique position to, uh, to capitalize everything pretty much everything we've done up to this point we haven't gotten paid nothing for we've gotten some nice awards and some you know papers so dad dad and i uh, uh, were at the state fair last week we got an award from the governor for a environmental leadership award and um we're or soil health champion national association of conservation districts and a lot of cool stuff like that but um you know no we've not really been able to utilize a real data and a real story in a marketplace and now with these 45z tax credits it looks like we're finally going to be able to really tap into um utilizing this story and, and getting paid for all this effort that we've put on but i don't know you're you're hearing a lot about it too what's what's some of your update on this um carbon intensity topic
1: um it's pretty quiet Amongst a lot of people, um, you start asking around. Farmers, especially, do not know much about this. And unfortunately, the, the, the clock is really ticking on us. Um, I think amongst the leaders in the ag community, um, you know, been to a variety of the commodity groups, the, um, the far, farmer groups out there. There's interest. They know they've heard of the, the term 45Z, um, but they don't know anything about it. Um, some of the, some of the ethanol or the, uh, the energy, the biofuels energy support groups are out there talking about it a little bit. It was at a program a couple of weeks ago and a guy that was, was with one of the energy groups was, was talking and, um, says, you know, we don't know much about what is going to happen with this credit yet and what the IRS is going to say, but you know, we have a year and a half before it kicks in, you know, first of uh, January 1, 2025. So we've got time to figure it out. Well, yeah, from your side you do, but those of us farming, um, we need to know now. We need to have this because we're going to plant this cover crop and we've already, we're already purchasing, if you haven't already purchased, if we use anhydrous. And if you haven't purchased your anhydrous already this year, um, you've already seen at least a 20% increase um, from where it was a month ago. Um, that's not going to slow down the way it sounds. It's going to continue to go up. Um, your P and K values, they're, they're climbing already as well. So we hit a low back in June on K, um, late May, early June, and now they're, they're all on the rise again. So as you're making decisions as to what to put on, that's going to impact your CI score. Um, so we, got, we need to know this information now as to what's going to happen. And the, unfortunately, nobody's looking at this thing as the, the calendar for sales of 2025 has already started.
0: Yeah. So this carbon intensity thing folks is, you know, it's looking at what is your, your inputs, your fertilizer, pesticide, fuel usage, those inputs. And what are you sequestering via your reduced tillage or no-till program? What are you doing from manure or uh, offsetting those synthetic inputs? Are you using cover crops? This all goes into your carbon intensity score. Then it's divided by the bushels that you are producing. And, uh, and we've been calculating this with uh, Continuum Ag with our, our software. But uh, we need the IRS to come out with their final ruling and put the Inflation Reduction Act code into the actual – take the law and put it in the actual tax code. And there's holdups on that. I was on, the, on a meeting today with one of the largest uh, CPA firms in the world. And uh, in the CPA world, there's big four – this is one of the big four, freaking massive, and um, we were talking about you know how are we going to make this uh, make this go, and can we collaborate together and stuff? We got some interesting things happening, but they said there was um, a different Inflation Reduction Act um, code around renewable hydrogen, or not renewable, but low carbon hydrogen or hydrogen uh, production that uh, the IRS recently missed a deadline about some of the rules that they were supposed to put out about low carbon hydrogen. And it ties in, as part of this hydrogen tax credit, I, I need to look into figuring out exactly what it is just literally got mentioned in the meeting I was on just a couple hours ago. This hydrogen deal, they're utilizing carbon intensity scores as part of this tax credit. And we might've been able to learn something from the IRS's ruling on this hydrogen deal to indicate what they're going to do about ethanol, biodiesel, renewable diesel, sustainable aviation fuel, the 45Z stuff, transportation fuels that we're talking about here, but they missed their deadline on hydrogen, punting a little bit, kicking the can down the road, um, not a great indicator on what could end up happening um, as far as the rules coming out early for this 45Z thing. It's, it's due to start no later than December 31st, 2024. So end of 2024, but like dad's just getting out, we need to know what the rules are because fuel produced in 2025 is produced with crop grown in 2024, uh, four, which is influenced by the practices that we're going to put on our farms this fall. The cover crop, the reduced tillage, the manure, the fertilizer, stuff that happen, that can happen this fall, it's going to influence your carbon intensity in twenty four. It's going to influence the carbon intensity of that fuel in 25. So um, doesn't look like they're going to be coming out with any rules here anytime soon, unfortunately, but on our side, it's more of the same. Farmers got We got to figure out what our carbon intensity score is. we got to be implementing these regenerative practices and documenting what you are doing. If you want to be able to monetize it in this opportunity or any others, it's same type of, reporting like if you're in an organic system non-gmo any other value add program it takes data to be able to document and uh, get verified that what you're doing is legit same type of thing with this carbon intensity stuff but um yeah we got to run some additional scenarios and stuff here as we go into the fall but i mean our far our program at this point like we've already cut back a lot on our on our inputs and stuff uh, and uh the PNK debate, like it's not much of a debate anymore. And the nitrogen's pretty dang low. And uh main thing we gotta figure out is some additional cover crop stuff here uh for this fall, more nitrogen fixing cover crop and stuff like that. But shoot, these um the nodulation that we're seeing on our soybeans this year being in that big cereal rye, it's just insane. So we're gonna have a heck of a nitrogen credit of organic nitrogen. For our crop next year but um, all adding up to low CI score here now so putting a number on all this stuff that we're doing.
1: So the good thing about what you got going Mitchell too is you know your your software you're collecting field data and everything right now to to meet the GREET model and then and beyond to some degree Um, but you're collecting the data and you're getting in a spot where you can utilize it for whatever you need to, to, to go for when the rules get written, when the value actually comes. Um, and everybody's scrambling, trying to, every, everybody's trying to use more and more of the data that we gather. It um, doesn't matter where it's, I mean, I was at meeting, co-op meeting today, and we're trying to figure out how do we better utilize information, turn it into real usable digital data that can be utilized to improve efficiencies of the co-op. Um, And then eventually towards the farmer, but a lot of them right now, um, even coming out of your equipment, they don't, the, 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 the my John Deere doesn't talk real well with the co-ops data with their, with their software systems. Um, You can't get everything you want. And then their system doesn't work necessarily with some of the farm systems that we, the farm data collection. And is it all going to tie in with this carbon piece? There's a whole bunch of segments out there and trying to get all of them together um it's like where does where do you start it all takes a tremendous amount of time and a tremendous amount of money but um those of us that can do something about it we got to do something about it just start and get the data collected because if you don't get it collected um uh, you're you're kind of sol if you don't have it
0: yeah i mean if you want to get paid for any of these efforts got to be able to prove that you're creating value and it's going to take data um but uh yeah i mean wild to be able to see you know can we connect some of these data platforms stuff together um yesterday i met with a company that has a software um uh it's a consulting company but they have their own software representing more than a half a million acres um or more you know in in data being able to get that connected and to make this easy on farmers to put some scores to what we're doing and hopefully put some dollars to it as well that's I think there's a heck of a lot of opportunities coming. Um, hopefully you've been able to take some ideas on what, you know, what we've been working on and uh, been able to, you know, hopefully you can take some of those ideas and implement on, implement them on your farm. are doing a lot of data on our side too, the Haney test and stuff. That's what we've been able to decrease, um, but it takes boots on the ground and being out there and paying attention to what's, what's happening. But um getting close to, uh, the, the hour. Um, so we'll work towards wrapping up uh, any additional questions, like definitely jump in. Um, hopefully this has been, uh, you know, some, some good insights for everyone. Appreciate you hanging out with us here tonight. Um, but dad, anything else that's, uh, on your mind or top, you know, top of mind stuff that we haven't gotten to here yet, or, you know, things that you're, that you're seeing or that you're thinking about as we go into this fall or next year or thoughts like that?
1: You know, one of the things that we we often get questions about is the transition of using cover crops and how long do you, does it take before you start seeing real, real results? And in the last several years, Mitchell, you and I have both a- answered this question a lot and very similarly that, you know, about three years in is when we really start to see visual signs of biological activity picking up worms especially the worms the worm activities in the fields and the um the quick degradation of the leftover organic materials on the surface they just devour it um, so we've been trying to figure out how to get more and more of it there but um what i'm really kind of noticing this year and in, in our ground we've got some good flat black ground you know that's 80 90 maybe in a little bit of 100 csr ground there in the state of iowa but we also have a bunch of ground that's 15 to 20, 25. Really poor ground, according to the state of Iowa. And that's what we
0: non-Iowa people, that's that's corn suitability rating. So 100 is the best. We have like some of that that's like supposed to be the best in the state at growing corn. And we have some that's just crap, like 15 out of 100 CSR. So that's that for context, that's what that's talking
1: about. So those 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 that are really low like that, they're highly eroded. Um. Uh, steeper slopes, so real high clay content, real tight soils, maybe even have some rocks in it. Um, we don't really have any sandy ground on our farm to speak of, but um, but on those what, those clay knobs, what we used to see is those when we'd have this extreme heat, we would see those clay knobs just pretty much burn up. You know, they would they would be really good at raising about fifty bushels of the acre corn and about ten to fifteen bushels of the acre soybeans. Those beans would get about a foot tall and that's as far as they would ever get. Um, what we have seen over after five, six years into it, we started noticing good black soil developing on those surfaces of that tight clay soil. And now it's, it's really worked its way down in, but this year, especially those clay knobs, um, which used to kind of burn up, they've got really nice looking soybeans and corn on them. And all of a sudden you know we, we it took a long time to get all the biology there and i think that was a big part of it to get the biology into that soil that was just it wasn't a good environment because it was just such tight clay the organic matter level was really low took a while to get all that going but now that we do have them going those low end low producing acres are now starting to produce a lot better um I would if we would get some rain I would really like to know what our high producing areas could do but we've just been short enough on water in a lot of these places that we just haven't seen a good year here for a while um but what's really nice is that resilience that we've gotten in the poorer soil um has really become very very evident especially this year
0: well and it's just um a really good point sure. to kind of maybe wrap up on and stuff here too unless people do have uh, some last questions but yeah, in mean, some of these clay knobs and stuff, there was a number of years where you didn't even grow soybeans at all because they just were crap at producing soybeans. We did corn on corn for a couple of years because at least grow something, just soybeans would just not work at all. And now to see that they can actually produce a crop in incredibly adverse conditions, even more adverse than what we had had in the, some of those years where we're like, well, through this, you know, let's just plant corn on corn. Now in a really adverse year, they're, they're paying off and they're working. We're seeing that resilience. And yeah, to your point, it'd be awesome if we could get a, a nice year. We haven't had a nice year in multiple years to really see how far could we take this now? How, what's that upper extent? You know, Where are we at with those areas that in good years can be 280, 300, 320 bush of corn? How can we, you know, can we see that across a lot more acres when we get decent conditions? This year, I don't know. I mean, the the farm that you mentioned that's 30 miles away, it's over close to West Liberty, it's going to have pretty decent corn. I mean, I mean, it, what, it's probably going to be 240, 250 bush corn over there, hopefully better, but yeah, um, on, hopefully it's in the 20, um, and uh, the beans hopefully – 55, 60, some of them maybe 65, where usually we'd be looking at 65, 70, 75, whole, whole field averages. Um, but that resiliency is what's really paying off. What's cool about where we're at now is we still participate in federal crop insurance, but it's at the 50% coverage rate. And we just need the insurance. We don't need that that coverage anymore and uh we're gonna see that really pay off here this year that it uh the soils are more balanced out and we get more consistency across the whole farm and no point in spending money on crop insurance when we could be self-insured and uh it, it's only there in case there's the massive catastrophic type of loss but that's really only going to come if we get wind or hail or something like that moisture we've had really wet years we've had really dry years like this year and it's just the resilience is there to maintain profitability. Right. Paying off. <laughs> yeah, now, it is.
1: It's, it's taken a while, but and, it, and you know the the real results are showing up. Yeah, you know, six, eight, ten years into it, um, and, we, and we've seen good results. We have seen this organic matter level rising across the farm, but um, like I say, those those poor areas they took, definitely took more time, but they were poor areas. So it takes time to build that. And, you know, we've tried to figure out how to spoon feed a little more fertilizer to that, especially the nitrogen on those areas, you know, yeah, they're not high yielding areas and that's where our our worst nitrogen, um, uh, efficiency is at. Um, we gotta, we gotta pump the nitrogen to this, but it, when you stop and think about it, it makes sense. There's not organic matter there. So, um, those high producing areas, a typical high producing areas of the field, have a lot of organic matter. They were produce, producing a lot of nitrogen, so you don't have to over over apply there. Cut it back and put it put in the areas that are lower producing. So, um, kind of just the opposite of what you would think, crop removal type of scenario. But um, but when you start to think about what's going on underground, that it starts to make some sense.
0: Yeah, so it's those good areas that we don't have to push on them as much anymore. Um, what are some of those organic matter levels? Just ask. In those crappy areas, you're talking one percent organic or less. In our good stuff, we've worked it all the way up to now. We got some stuff that's 6.2, six, six point two percent. field averages that are now um, you know, over five, you know, getting up to five percent and higher. Um, but it's we've overall we've seen significant increases in our organic matter um, from like 2010 to 2020. We saw about a 1.4 um, percent increase, whole field averages um, in organic matter on uh, on some of our fields. So seeing things really start to increase. But the key for us has been a lot of variability. You know, from one percent to six percent organic matter. It's just all over the place. But seeing with these regenerative practices that across the board we can improve more consistencies we can get things to level out. We can t- get rid of some of those really crappy areas and get them all caught up to some of the better areas. But um, just seeing the stuff pay off. I mean, that, that's, I think the the key for, for us all uh, on and we're seeing, like we're, we're absolutely seeing it. It's absolutely working the right way. And uh, could we go faster? If we were to go more extreme, more diversity, we don't have livestock that's integrated on these fields. Um, we're still using pesticides. You know, could could we go further? Absolutely. You absolutely. We could. We're absolutely leaving opportunity on the table. I know it for sure. Because, and we see it in our. Uh, we have our uh, plot that is our is dad's sweet uh, sweet corn patch. It gets diverse cover crop, and like it it does get a around pass some um, uh, early part of the year to kill off the the cover um, to let the corn go. but. That's it. And it grows just amazing corn in there and the soil, the structure, the activity is just through the roof because of those diverse covers. And so I know we're leaving opportunity uh, on the table out at scale, but in that sweet corn patch, we can plant the cover crop really early. You know, that sweet corn comes off in the summer, can plant, can have cover crop out there and get that diversity where in our current full season row crop system, Uh, just not able to really exemplify all that diversity.
1: So, and you, as you've mentioned that diversity, we started off talking about relay cropping and, um, we have, we've tried to do some of that relay cropping on some of that rougher ground. Um, because we know that that's what, what that's the soils that would benefit most from the multi-species crops and especially two crops growing to maturity during a year, um, the cover crop growing heavy throughout, you know, the, the fall and winter and spring but the, the hardest part is harvesting relay crops. Um, is not the easiest thing in the, do, in the world to do, especially on rougher ground. Um, until somebody figures out how to get a platform to ride three inches above the tallest leaf on whatever soybean plants underneath it, um, we're gonna struggle with that because it's, it's all manual control um, on your height because you gotta stay just above the tops of those soybeans and it's, it does get to be work.
0: Yeah. Um, Brad just asked if we've taken bricks level on corn and beans, and Brad, no, we're, we're not. We really need to. It's something I would keep talking about, and uh, we need to actually, you know, quantify it and have some of those numbers. Um, at this point, you know, it's spoon feeding some of the sugars, knowing they are moving in a good direction, but we really are screwing that one up. Um, not putting a number to it. We have a number on like every single thing else that we do, but that bricks one, it's just newer to us, and uh, we we need to it but not right now um anyway hey we better uh we better wrap things up uh how many times putting on sugar actually that's a good question too what's your um the sugar program and and um Rus- uh, russell hedrick is is really the guy that's pushing a lot of sugar they've been working with um russell i think has some materials out there as well folks want to hear more on sugar but yeah maybe explain kind of your thought process to that i'm going to turn on my light because it's getting really dark in here
1: yeah you get the sunshine in behind you um the uh my application basically has been just one uh to tell you the truth on on corn um i'm if if i were to do it I'd maybe split it up and do two but um i i haven't done anything at planting time with, with the sugars we've used some other biologicals and such but um uh let me take that back i think i did use some sugars and in, in some of the stuff early in, in with a starter but uh, i typically don't mess with a lot of it at planting time um it's 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 cheap it's simple it's just a sticky mess when you deal with it, when you're trying to blend it and get it into solution but a um, uh,
0: pound is what you've been doing with.
1: yeah typically about a pound I'm shooting for a pound of the acre right now uh, per year. So if I split it up and do a half pound or so, but you could probably do more than that pretty easily.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But it sounds like um, from what we learned from Russell, you don't want to go a crazy heavy rate of this sugar. It, you just take, I mean, literally, Dad mentioned before, buying literally baking sugar from from Walmart, from, your, from the grocery store in town, and um, buying just regular table sugar, blend it in with the water let it get dissolved you know and, and uh just know how much water you want to put on and blend the right amount of sugar in there to get about a half pound per acre uh you know as your actual application rate and then do it a couple i think russell has talked that in total he'll get on about two and a half pounds two to two and a half pounds i think but he split applies it like multiple times he's going across his fields a lot of times a lot of for the most part we're not going across the fields um all that often he's got a really full growing season there in north carolina significantly further south than we are um you know significantly different climate so he's got a a couple of extra passes that he typically gets across the field that um you know we we could probably push it further if we had more of that sugar in there and we need to be testing the bricks is what we're missing out on to figure out are we getting to the level that we need to are we getting natural system to do its own thing so we don't really need to supplement it with the table sugar but um
1: yeah and and we because we've got some other uh sources of um sugars really our 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 seaweed products basically that's what they are is they're providing a bit of a a, a a sugar source out there to stimulate microbial activity microbial growth um this is yeah this is kind of a little different animal We're, we're kind of Using it more, you know, bring that bricks level up and try to control some insect pressure. Um, those, those bugs, some of them bugs just won't eat this stuff. They just they just don't like it. And that's yeah, what kind and of t- army army worms, particularly what we did a couple of years ago. Yeah, uh, it's, year.
0: it's just you know we're applying simple sugars here, whether it be as an actual table sugar, very simple, or some of these more complex things like the humix or like the stuff that's in the seaweed products or other things that we play around with. We're just trying to get more carbon out there is what it is. It's more carbon to get the plants stimulated, doing more of their own thing, getting more of their own photosynthetic activity going on, get those bricks levels, the sugar content, get that higher. The insects can't digest it. They can't eat it and uh, they move on or it kills them. And uh, we got a lot healthier plant at the end of the day as well. That, um, you know, other things we need to be looking at is other nutrient efficiencies and nutrient density and that kind of stuff here as well. But just seeing it really pay off, that the diseases are just not really as much of an issue like they used to be. And the pests aren't a, a big issue like they used to be. And, um, you know, in a biological system, like what we're in here, trying to be more regenerative, we don't want to put on a bunch of pesticides and kill a lot of our good guys. So if we can utilize, um, more, preventative things, getting the plants healthier with better nutrition and with uh getting the bricks content higher. The plants fend off the problems on their own. And we don't have to apply broad spectrum pesticides that kill just as many, if not more, good guys than what they're killing bad guys. But anyway, hey, we better uh we better wrap things up here. And uh appreciate everyone hanging out with us here tonight. Um, I think it's been fun and you know, fun to be able to just catch up and talk about a lot of different topics and stuff. So I know, uh, I think the plan is Rick will be back next week and, uh, have some more guests on continue on a lot of these conversations. If you want to hear more about some of the stuff that we've got going on, on our farm, um, you can check out our, our social media pages and stuff. Just it's all under my stuff, Mitchell Hora or continue mag, a bunch of YouTube videos and stuff like that on our continue Mag YouTube page, a bunch of different stuff out there on on what dad's got going on on the farm and what we got going on with continuum and stuff. So, uh, definitely check that out and we will see everyone here next time. Uh, Rachel, unless you've got anything else, we will, we'll call a night.